0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or in memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one podcast, where we spend 30 minutes speaking about the Parsha. Our episodes in the Book of B'rishit focus on family and interpersonal dynamics. These conversations are candid, insightful, and respectful. We aim not to psychoanalyze biblical figures, but to learn from them as we stumble through our own beautifully messy lives. This week's episode has been dedicated by Michelle Feiglin and Debbie Nosbaum in honor of their father's seventh yortzite, Natan ben Shlomo Melech. Nathan Werdegar, as he was known, was a Holocaust survivor who came to Australia by himself, built of a large family and business, and always maintained his strong faith in Torah learning. He was an incredible role model for his family, optimistic, loving, a big belt, and had a deep love for Eretz Yisrael. He made every person feel special and always took interest in each grandchild, great-grandchild, and their spouses. May his neshama have Roshad Vayichi chronicles Yaakov's preparations for death. These preparations open with his request from Yosef that he be buried in Canaan and continues with the blessings of his two grandsons, a scene which has a potential to end disastrously like Yaakov and Esav's blessing mix-up, but thankfully doesn't. Yaakov then calls on all of his sons to deliver what is often called the testament of Yaakov, mostly blessings he bestows upon his children with many hints to their future tribal realities. Yaakov dies, and mourning practices are observed both according to Egyptian and Israelite tradition. After this, the brothers have their final interaction with Yosef, a painful moment in time we explored a bit in last week's episode. And finally, Yosef himself passes away at the age of 110. Poignantly, the final words of the book of Reshit is Mitzrayim, which connects us to the initial setting of the book of Shemot. Today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Rabbi Alex Israel, who is a teacher and scholar of Tanakh at Matan, Yeshiva Ter Tetzvi, Midrash at Lindenbaum, and directs programming at the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. His books, First Kings Torn in Two and Second Kings in a Whirlwind, have been received with great acclaim. His writings may be found at www.alexisrael.org. Rabbi Alex has also Recently launched his Tanakh podcast, which follows the daily 929 learning schedule called the Tanakh podcast, which can be found on all major podcasting platforms. Rev Alex, it's great to have you here again. It's
1: great to be here, Yosefa. Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: I didn't say you were a returning guest, but last you were on to speak about the Nazir in, uh, in the book of Amidvar. So it's great to be back here to speak about family and to really close this series looking at these final these final sections in the book of Breshit.
1: That is true. That is true. And one of the things that I wanted to raise is actually not just the relationship between Yaakov and his sons, which is so prominent through Parshat Vayechi, but an idea that uh, was actually spoken about at a Shalom Zachar for our recently born grandson, Hmm. where the great uncle of the new little baby spoke about the idea that Yaakov is the first of the Avot who we really see as a grandparent. We see him blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, And uh, later on we read in the Parsha that Yosef clearly learns from him because we have this idea of Yosef le Ephraim Bene not only a grandparent, but a great grandparent, Gambane al Burke Yosef, uh, at the end of the Parsha, the notion of great grandchildren. And he suggested something really interesting. He said that maybe Yaakov is the first of the Avot that relates to his grandchildren, because Yaakov is the first of the Avot, who actually had a Jewish grandfather. Hmm. He himself experienced being a grandchild. And in fact, Chazal even talk about the idea that Esav and Yaakov stayed on, on the derech, or Esav stayed, as long as Avraham was alive, they had respect for their grandfather. And for the first 15 years of their life, they experienced being a grandchild. And it's interesting that Yaakov seems to invest um, in his grandchildren. You
0: know, there's two Quick thoughts I have on that point. The first is the potential power that grandparents have to wield influence over their grandchildren. I feel like par- grandparents it's almost it's a it's an option. Meaning grandparents can choose the role they want to have in their grandchildren's lives. They don't have the same potential to harm, thankfully, that parents do for their children, but grandparents really have that decision. How much do they want to be present? How much are they going to be essential in their grandchildren's lives? And the second piece is that I think interestingly in this I say, you know, from the the parent raising children perspective, which is that when Yosef encounters his father with his grandchildren in the surrounding, he he tries to get involved, right? He doesn't like the way that the grandparent is functioning (laughs) with the grandchildren. He's you're messing up here, right? You are you are sort of unknowingly about to pass on to my children something that was quite complicated in your life, which is don't mix
1: up the older with the younger. This is toxic. This is explosive. Leave it out of my family.
0: Exactly. And I just want to say that from a, a real-life perspective, and we won't, we won't go here any more than this, which is that that's a tension that between that sometimes between parents and grandparents, meaning the parents of the child, that is a real-life thing of you see grandparents functioning a certain way. How much do you let them do their thing? How much do you get involved? And I think that it's really brilliant that it actually comes up in the moment that he, meets, that he meets Yaakov in the surroundings with Ephraim and Menashe in this week's Russia.
1: and there's a, there's a gorgeous comment of the Ramban when Yosef brings his sons to be blessed by Yaakov. You know, he hears that uh, and he knows his father's sick, and he particularly brings the grandchildren. And uh, Ramban says, that if he wants to give a real blessing to Yosef, It's to embrace and to bless his grandchildren. And that as parents, we actually want our parents to be interested in our children. We want to keep that intergenerational connection alive. And that's the greatest blessing to Yosef that Yaakov should bless his children.
0: And also sometimes for parents, if they've had a more complex relationship with their children, a lot of times the repair can happen actually in their relationship with their grandchildren. A lot of times the love they could show, that's how I kind of read the Midrash, the love they can show for their grandchildren can sometimes provide uh, a better version or an evolved version of the relationship they were able to craft with their own child. Right, fascinating. So that's that's one prism really of this week's Parsha, is you can't really ignore the... The, the shifting of the generations.
1: That is true. So when we look at our Parsha, I love it, the Parsha is called Vayechi, uh, Vayechi Yaakov. Yaakov lived, but really, in so many ways, this Parsha is a long death scene. Um, <laughs> <laughs> slow, a series, slow unraveling. A series of death <laughs> scenes. In the first uh, segment in Perek uh, Mem Zayin, uh Yaakov has an audience with Yosef and asks him, don't bury me in Egypt, take me to Eretz Israel." Then he has his goodbye to Yosef's children, that's chapter 48. Then chapter 49, he blesses every single one of his children, um, one by one. And in the end, uh, um, in- interestingly for the other Avot, it says, and with Yaakov, it just says, And as a result yep. of which, the rabbis say, Yaakov didn't die in some way. Maybe we'll relate to that in a few minutes. Um, so funny, the man who spent the longest time in the Bible dying, they say, he didn't die. <laughs> he doesn't even get to die in the end. Anyway, whatever that means, we'll talk about it. But, uh, but it, there's something really fascinating that Chazal say about, about Yaakov. And uh, we have this sense of... Hine uh, avicha chole, that Yaakov is the first person who becomes sick. In fact, the rabbis dramatized it in a typical Midrashic way and said, you know, people used to just sneeze and die, but Yaakov actually asked to die slowly. He asked to become sick. And I love the Midrash from which this is taken. Uh, it's, it's, it's back in the story of Avraham, Avraham Zaken Babi Yamim. And the Midrash says that each of the three Avot asked for different things of their old age or approaching death. Avraham Abraham wanted old age. Avraham said, how can it be that I step into the room with my son and nobody knows who is the father and who is the son? Avraham wanted the dignity of old age. He wanted to be the patriarch of a clan. He wanted to be the godfather of the family, the figurehead. Yitzchak went into death actually wanting to suffer. Strangely enough, Yitzchak said, How, If a person dies without suffering, then he won't have penance. He won't have cleansed himself of his sins in this world. I want to go to the next world having suffered everything and go to Olam Abba with sort of, this sort of clean slate.
0: By the way, I can only read into that the Akedah, meaning he once came very close to death and wasn't able to prepare for it at all, from a spiritual perspective. So I think Chazal are reading that very deeply into here, meaning right. this is already a man who's come very close to death once.
1: That is that is very deep. <laughs> so he so Yitzchak is looking for this sense of, of purity, and, and he's looking to be absolved of his sins, and he hopes that all of his suffering in old age will somehow... Help him somewhere along the way. It, it's not suffering, the suffering that leads to his death won't just evaporate and and be meaningless. Mm-hmm. It will be meaningful and it will cleanse him, and he wants to die clean of sin. Yaakov Tavita Yakov Yaakov really wanted to get sick. Um, why? He says, Adam mate balokholi if somebody dies without getting sick, yashev Ben Banav, which is an interesting question. He okay. can't settle between his sons. Now does Yaakov need to settle with his sons? Does he need to cleanse the friction between his sons? But Yaakov wants to plan his death. He wants to choreograph his death. He wants to have everything said. He wants to leave a letter for every single person. And I find this remarkable because it's so Yaakov. Yaakov is the quintessential planner. Yaakov doesn't like surprises. Yaakov is the one who sort of tries to manipulate behind the scenes his relationship with his brother Buying the birthright. not that it particularly helps him um, Trying to steal the brachot and he always wants to with, with Lavan also He thinks he can make a contract with Lavan He makes a business deal and yet Lavan outsmarts him ten times and then he busy outsmarts him when he Makes his approach to Esau he tries to plan and send gifts And frequently Yaakov is surprised He gets surprised by the switching of of, of, uh, Leah instead of Rachel. He gets surprised by being pinned down by an angel and wakes up in the morning sort of like rubbing his head or rubbing his thigh, and suddenly Esau's there and he's unprepared. Yaakov always wants to prepare, and he never manages to. And Yaakov almost says, well, if there's one thing I'd like to prepare for, let me be sick so that I... it's not a surprise. Let me let me let me be sick so that I can say everything that needs to be said.
0: I think it also presents very poignantly, I'm thinking in basketball terms, because I'm a basketball player, but while he's always like he always likes to plan, he's always been on the defense, okay? He's never really been able to foresee things in a way that was truly masterful. And so he found himself constantly being hit, right? That was the and he's never able to, he's wanted to be able to have sort of that bird's eye view and it hasn't happened for him. And I sort of feel like the Midrash presents him and says, at least for my death, let me be, let me be masterful about it. And I think that that image about creating peace between my son, well, it's because Yaakov realizes that it's, it's it's the unfinished business right and and we see even when he dies by the way that midrash is great proof for the fact that the brothers don't lie when they go to Yosef and say our father said you should continue to support us right because if he was really trying to make peace between his sons he'll want to have them sort of coexist as long as possible but ultimately whether that is achieved or not is its own question about the relationship between the brothers. But we really see Yaakov struggling with the fact that his life in many moments sort of felt like it was unraveling or sort of attacked him. And here he says, at least in my death, let me be able to do it well in the presence of everybody where there is clear communication, right? There's some sort of overall planning. So I right. read that very very powerfully into his life. What,
1: what I love about this Midrash is that we watch older generations approach the end of their life and it's fascinating what is on people's you know some people are holding desperately onto life yeah. some people the way they want to you know look at look at their families avram says i want the dignity i want the dignity of old age yitzhak says my old age might be tough but i hope it purifies me mm-hmm. and Yaakov is actually is actually planning out the future yeah um, so
0: can to accomplish something. In his yeah, own
1: he's, he's looking forward. It's it's an amazing thing that Yaakov, there are all these different midrashim about Yaakov uh, talking to his family and saying to God, thank God that my mita or, or whatever it is. Yaakov, what Rabbi Sachs calls the rejection of rejection. Yaakov, even though his his sons are not perfect, he even curses some of his sons on his deathbed. And yet everybody is in. Mm hmm. Everybody, the, the, the Chacham, and the Rasha, and the Tam, and the She'eni Ali Elishol, all the 12 tribes, with all of their difference and all of their diversity, uh, with their flaws, their warts and all, right? With the tensions, because there is in every family, right? And yet, this is the beginning of Kal Israel. That sense of the totality, the 12 tribes. There's something very powerful. And maybe because there is this great diversity, one needs to, Li'ashev bin banav, one needs to, find some way. But is almost determined that this will be the end of the rejection, the rejection of rejection, that this is the beginning of of the Kalal.
0: If I can go back to the point that you opened our conversation with, was about the first grandparents, so to speak, or the first, sorry, the first with the awareness of having a grandparent. You know, I think about Avraham, because he didn't have a tradition to draw upon, he was very focused as you brought in the midrash, but I think also in the Psukim, he's very focused with the vision of what the future has. And Yaakov, because he has sort of tradition of grandparent to to look back on, he's he's very much trying to sort of focus on how to map out what's been going on. There's there's more factors at play for Yaakov than there was for Avram, so to speak, or for certainly than there was for for Yitzhak. And so this need to plan or to address every child is that he's coming, he's really fraught with awareness of what he's created. You know, again, Avram's at the beginning, so it's just the beginning of a process, and Yaakov is coming in as sort of a much richer place and has provided many more branches uh, on this tree. So I think that that also, you know, he, he has a lot, le- it's almost, there's more responsibility on his plate, I think, than the than the patriarchs who come before him.
1: I wanted to move to uh, a further topic, which is the way that Yaakov's vision doesn't only look forward, but Yaakov's vision looks back. And we all have these verses that we so well know, Hamalacha HaGoeh L'Otimi we sing it to our children, Yevareche the angel who redeemed us, redeemed me from all evil. He should bless these children, avotai, Avraham um, v'Yitzchak. So first of all, it's, it's a remarkable thing that he tells his grandchildren, you know, I want you to bear the legacy of Avraham, Yitzchak, and me. That's just phenomenal education, <laughs> a phenomenal sense of where you come from. But I noticed that when we look at this, HaMalacha <laughs> EloT Otimi Korah, Yaakov is, is, is looking back at his life, he interacted with the angels quite a bit. We all remember the, the, the dreams with angels, the fighting with angels, the, you know, the meeting angels. And he says, there was an angel who protected me from every evil. Now, here's the fascinating thing. In just last week's parsha, we saw that Yaakov met with Pharaoh, and it was just 17, 17 years earlier. And he says, yeah, "Paro says, how old are you? And he says, I'm 130. Ma'at baraim hayu yemei chayai. I've had a short life and a bitter life. Ma'at v'ra'im. I've had an awful life, right? I went from Esav to Lavan, back to Esav, to Dina and Shechem, to the Yosef. It's been one heck of a nightmare. And now he's been living with his family in some sense of unity in Egypt, maybe in the lap of luxury royalty, for 17 years. And now he turns around to his grandchildren and he says, Hamalach Hagoel Otim ikora. not my not my life was bad and short. He says, "Oh, you know what? I had an angel who helped me get through all those bad moments." As opposed to 17 years earlier, where he maybe was still reeling from his 22 years of mourning for Yosef, his perspective has shifted, and he sees the divine guidance. He knows he had tribulations but he says, you know what? There was always an angel with me, protecting me. And I just think that retrospective look, which has sort of like changed the past. He seems to have changed his perspective. In his old age, he looks at life differently, and actually in a more positive way than he was willing to see 17 years ago. And I find that, you know, if we're talking about end of life, approaching death, there's the notion of crafting the legacy of the family But he's actually changed the way he looks at his whole uh, autobiography.
0: You know, that thought brings up two thoughts in me. The first is that, you know, we spoke in earlier episodes about how Yosef adopts a different theological perspective. That one of the ways that he... He deals with or sort of comes to terms with the fate that he's met, is that he says, It's true, my brothers meant to do pretty bad to me. I'm I don't need to forgive them or 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 put that on the side. But ultimately, God had a plan for me. And I almost feel as if, and this is also a real phenomenon that happens, I almost feel as if Yaakov. I'm sorry, I feel almost as if Yosef's theological reframe has almost rubbed off on Yaakov here. I mean, he, sometimes that happens to parents, that they learn from their own children. And of course, we don't have an interaction between them where, where we know that happened, but that's sort of an intuitive read on my part, that, that after all this time, he's sort of said, look, if my son who went through this very difficult thing, was able to reframe, maybe I can reframe as well. And all of those interactions with those angels, which sometimes were threatening or difficult or left me crippled, are, are something that actually was guiding me along along this time. And the, the other piece that it brings up for me is, so there's this great book, uh, it's called Happier Endings by Erica Brown. And it's, it was her sort of a, uh, a year-long project where she sort of explored how people die, how people die better. Uh, and she, at some point in the book, and I think it's in the beginning, she really takes issue, so to speak, with the with the accepted stages, or so to speak, stages of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, all these different stages. And she, and, and I'll also just add, by the way, that anybody who's interested in this topic should really look at David Kessler's work. He was the main student of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and he wrote a book called uh, Finding Meaning, or something of that sort, uh, where he sort of says that she never meant these stages to be prescriptive and 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 has important things to say about that. But she says as follows, Eric Brown. She says, the last most potent stage or development within the framework of loss is not acceptance, it's inspiration. I humbly believe that Kubler-Ross missed something in her categorization, and that may be the key to the fine art of dying well. Uh, If we can ever truly call it that. And she says, once someone is able to utter these words, I need to be prepared, which is for me is Yaakov, right? That's what he said from the Midrash. A flood of change takes place that enables us to face death without fear. This is the stage I call inspiration, a stage that never appears in Ross's framework, but appears in virtually every conversation I had with a person or family who managed to do death better. The intentional decision to become better prepared for death gives the dying permission to love more fully, to say the words they wanted to say for a lifetime, to repair and heal troubled relationships, and to entertain a range of ethereal and spiritual thoughts and actions previously closed off, sealed, or masked by the pragmata of everyday anxieties. And I'll just add that I think about that when I think about this reframe that you brought about for Yaakov, because it almost feels like Yaakov has truly accepted his death, he's moved into that stage of inspiration, and because of that, he's, he's seeing things differently. He's literally reframing his life, looking at his children in ways sometimes more empathic, sometimes less so, um, but he's looking at his children also through a different frame.
1: Right. I find it fascinating, your first point, that he's affected by Yosef's theology. Because I'd actually looked at it slightly differently, and I thought to myself, you know, when you're in the thick of misery, it really affects you, and everything looks dark. Mm -hmm. But when you're in, when you get a bit of space in life, you can, you know, frequently, you just find, you know, the light shining. So, you know, maybe there is something in that Yaakov got a little bit of relief for the first time. That yeah. shalva that he was looking for in the last yeah. 17 years of his life. And sometimes gaining that space, sometimes getting that breathing room, enables you to have a more positive, positive perspective.
0: Totally. Of course, the only thought in on his side was his location of living. but uh, But other than that, sure. I agree, these are his most, it seems, his most peaceful years that right. we've ever seen in his life. Right.
1: So the final point that I think it might be worthwhile talking about is the notion of legacy. Because Yaakov doesn't only just bless his sons, organize the family, or reflect backwards, but he leaves us with certain things. Um, the opening lines of the parasha, I think, are very powerful because he calls uh, Yosef, and he talks to him in a very dignified way. He's almost talking to Yosef, as the leader of Mitzrayim, the man who has the power, yes. and he makes him take an oath, Simla Yad and he says, Don't bury me in Egypt. You know, that's, it's phrased in the negative. Later on, he talks about Kever Machpela, but here he talks in the, in the very, very negative sense, not Egypt. Rabbi Hirsch says, Jacob had lived 17 years with his family in Egypt. And he must have noticed what a powerful influence the vayayah the last words of the previous parasha, were beginning to have on his descendants, mm. how they had already begun to see the Jordan in the Nile and to find their stay in Egypt, no exile. Sufficient motive this for him to press with such ceremonious solemnity that they should not bury him in Egypt, but they should carry him to the land of their old true homeland. Motive enough for him to say, you hope and wish to live in Egypt— I do not wish to even be buried there. Quite a powerful statement. Yaakov ends his life in Egypt, um, and yet at the same time, he is one of the Avot, where the foundational promises of Zera and Aretz. He's got the Zera. He wants to make sure his family make it back. I always find it fascinating that to the brothers, he doesn't give this negative message. Alnatik bereini b'Mitzrayim. He says kivroti You know the kivrotabotai. And it's interesting that out of all of the brothers, out of all of the 12 sons, the only one who similarly makes the same request, I don't want to be buried in Egypt, take my bones out of here, is Yosef. He's the man who held... You know, interesting question sometimes, what is more powerful, negative messaging or positive messaging? If I come along and say, we love Eretz Yisrael, or I say, no way are we going to stay here in Galut. Yako says, yeah, to Yosef, the man who is the most acculturated to Egypt. Yosef gets the message. Mm-hmm. He gets the message, and these are the ending lines of the Parsha where Yosef tells his brothers: An, Velohim,, aretz." I'm going to die. God is going to redeem you and take you out of this land, the land which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he made them take an oath saying, Ha'alitem et atzmotai mizeh. And this phrase, pakod yifkod Elohim etchem, he doesn't only make them promise to take his bones out. He almost makes them swear that they will believe in pakod yifkod. They will believe in redemption. Mm. This language comes back at the sneh, where God says pakod pakarati. I have... Visited you I have come true of my historic promises on the Brit, on the Covenant this belief in Redemption Along with this don't bury me here. Don't let me rest here and 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 the last thing the Jews do as they leave Egypt is to take Yosef's Moshe takes Yosef's bones Because he made them, them swear saying Pakod, Yaakov leaves a huge legacy but one legacy he leaves is that we, we, we can't stay. We can't stay in Galut, that ultimately we won't be home till we come to Eretz Yisrael. And this, this uh, raises sort of very important questions about where we belong. But I think it, even beyond that, it raises really interesting questions about what legacies, if we want to broaden this out, what legacies we get from our parents. What legacies we get, are they, are they deliberate, Are they subliminal, right? Sometimes somebody gets something from their parents or grandparents (laughs) just because that's the way they acted, not because they ever said it, right? And uh, are, you know, positive messaging, negative negative messaging, I'm going to do this because it's the opposite of what my mother did, (laughs) or I'm going to do this because that was my father's tradition, right? What, What legacies do we bear?
0: You know, to go back to the interpersonal piece between Yaakov and Yosef, so it's interesting because, first of all, we see that in this way, Yaakov and Yosef, to their death, remained more intertwined than Yaakov and the other children in that regard. I mean, I think it really sort of memorializes the deep connection between them. Almost
1: an intimacy.
0: Yeah, a real intimacy, an intimacy of vision, intimacy of how we see ourselves resting in this world and the next. I think that that's a very deep connection between them. And then I was asking myself as you were speaking, why does he go to Yosef? So I agree with you. He goes to Yosef to ask him because he knows he's the guy in charge. And he knows that probably taking a body out of Egypt was not culturally accepted. As you could see if you read really carefully into the first half to the last chapter in in Sefer Brashid's fascinating lesson on how to maintain a dual identity in the diaspora, Um, but I think that beyond that, of all the brothers, Yosef was brought to Egypt. You said he was the Muslim culture, which is true, but he's the only one brought to Egypt against his will. The other brothers choose to come there again. Choosing is a, is a, is a complicated term. Okay. But the other brothers choose to come there and Yosef is brought there against his will. And because Yosef has worked so hard while being completely within the Egyptian system, to, be, to maintain his identity as being, to a certain degree, Israelite or a certain loyalty to his Israelite identity, I feel that Yaakov sees him as a co-patriot. Whereas the brothers, they've never pretended to culture it into, these, into the Egyptian world, meaning they live separately. They live in their own space. And so he he might even, again, this is a total conjecture, but he might even look at Yosef, not only as the powerful one who can wield and make his wish come true, but he has a real understanding of how you can get sucked in, but still manage to not get sucked into that culture. So I feel like it also reflects a real respect that Yaakov has for the way Yosef evolved, being who he is in that society.
1: Fascinating, really fascinating.
0: But but I think that general question, you know, we'll just leave it as an open one of 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 the legacies that we that we give to our, our children. I'll just say, maybe on a personal note, that um my parents bought plots years ago in in the states uh, to be buried in and it was with some relatives and and that was that and then uh, uh, i guess at this point it was like 8 years back they were sort of doing a group on for uh, plots here in Israel through <laughs> I didn't know you could do group <laughs> through my through my parents shul and my speaking about being intentional my father actually asked permission from my two older siblings if it would be okay if they move their burial plots to Israel, because it would incur travel and more inconvenience on their part. Obviously, my permission, he didn't need to ask, both uh, ideologically and, and technically. And in fact, they bought it. Sadly, it was used quicker than had been imagined on the part of my father. But what I wanted to say is that I was moved by that whole situation. Never in my life have I ever tried to share my ideological Parts and feelings, which are big parts of me. I've never tried to send them back on my family. I don't function like that. I'm also the youngest. I think it's connected. But I was moved by that shift that happened subtly, apparently, you know, from my from my parents perspective of where's the place they want to be. And I know that that's something that resonates. No matter where everybody chooses to live, it resonates really deeply for all those who come and visit, meaning coming to visit here says something about somebody's values. So this whole question about where one gets buried and where it's important for you, I agree with you. We can remove it from the Israel diaspora context. I don't think it just exists there, but that even in our decisions about certainly how we die, but also where we die, what messages those send for all of those who are going to come visit and think about us after we're no longer here?
1: That's a really valid point. So since you shared a story, I'll share something from my grandfather. And I'll just say that, uh, you know, it's really interesting, the legacies we bear. I learned a lot from my grandfather and Baruch Hashem. He lived till almost 100 years old and I had wonderful experience with him. But I will still remember as a little boy, he used to pick me up every Sunday morning. Uh, I think my parents wanted me out of the house. They wanted a morning off. I used to go (laughs) with my grandfather to Shacharit. And then I used to go back to his house and uh, learn with him. And uh, one thing I remember, he always used to, my it was at 8.15, he used to listen to the 8 o'clock news, and he was always waiting outside the house at 8.05, and on the way to shul, he always used to say his birchot ha-shachar to himself, balpeh. And the funny thing is, I always say my birchot ha-shachar on the way to shul. As I'm walking to shul, I don't say it at home, I don't say it in shul, I say my birchot ha on the way to shul, and I always think of my grandfather on a regular basis. And it's really interesting the the legacies we take from mm-hmm. previous generations, um, small things which somehow are this very meaningful thread which tie us to through the generations.
0: Totally. So, you know, I just wanted to close today's episode with, uh, we really are closing our series on Sefer Brishit. We explored so many different angles of family and interpersonal dynamics, siblings, relatives, superiors, and, of course, aging parents, These conversations have touched upon personal moments and life themes, and I'm so grateful to all of our guests for coming on and sharing their Torah thoughts and life wisdom. I want to thank all of our listeners for reaching out over these past number of episodes. This series has produced significant more feedback and communication than others, I'm certain because of its more personal nature, and it has been moving to receive each and every one of these communications. Please continue to reach out. I always try my best to respond. I open the race episodes with my favorite passage from a Torah commentary in his introduction to race before moving on to the national stage, the Torah laid before us an entire book that details our human shortcomings, what Dr. L. Ziegler called the human traits we are called upon to overcome. Jealousy, rivalry, pettiness are just some of the traits that get in the way of our personal relationships. What Rabbi Sachs explained is that we must do this personal work in order to become successful on the big stage as a nation and God's people. In this light, our next series in the book of Shmot focuses on identity and nationality formation. Through our usual textual focus and sensitivity, we want these episodes to explore some of the following big questions. How does a group of slaves transform into God's chosen people? What long-lasting import and meaning does the Sinai experience offer us now? What is its role in the formation of the people then and now? The concept of covenant and its centrality to Judaism? Why the Mishkan? What is its role in our national spiritual lives? What Biblical ideas about nation-forming are influential in the political, in the broad sense, sphere today? And finally, God appears to Moshe and the people in several different forms and through varied personality traits throughout the book of Shemot. How does this relate to our current lives and our Avodah HaShem, our worship of God? Throughout these conversations, I will think and challenge our guests to anchor these big ideas in our practical lives. What does all of this mean for us now? How can I carry the book of Shemot with me in my hands and in my heart? Stay tuned for this next series of candid and hopefully moving conversations. And as always, please make sure to share these episodes with friends and family. Rav Alex, thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for hosting
0: me. And the Shabbat Shalom to everybody. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.